Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, November 30th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, Web SQL Database, storing images as Base64, and error handling considerations for REST APIs. Sounds like fun. Please stay tuned. The next... Richard Nixon podcast is next. Best laid plans. Yeah. I'm sure it's not Monday. <laughs> that was good enough. I think that's good enough. Yeah. So how's it going? Uh, not bad. <laughs> cool. <laughs> you know, I um. Yeah, I had something I was gonna tell you about, but I totally blanked on it. It's probably you're probably distracted by the um, monster vac in the background. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, or it could be my dog just chewing bones behind me. Yeah, or the fact that that you couldn't <laughs> talk straight either. <laughs> Too busy laughing at you. It's probably the first. I, I don't think I've actually spoken a word yet today, so that's probably my mouth wasn't ready. Yeah, I haven't either. It's been all email and Twitter and all that. Yeah, you know, warm up to actual conversation. Yeah. Don't want to pull something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More coffee. Exactly. So, geez. Uh, was last, last week was Thanksgiving, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Jeez. Yeah, we're already all... I already feel like it's Christmas. We're all decked out here. Got yeah, like we, a... we don't... We don't have any you know, any kind of Christmas decorations here, but it's a little early for us still. I think kind it's... I don't get yeah. into it until... You know, after the first week of December, usually. Yeah, I think it's early for most human beings. But, uh, <laughs> not Erica. We already have, uh, we had, it's kind of the tradition, like, as soon as Thanksgiving's done, like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is all about, you know, elfifying the house. Right. So, we've already got, uh, in fact, this morning she put up a, um, a four-foot-tall felt Christmas tree in the back hallway, mm-hmm. like, glued to the wall with, like, removable felt ornaments. So Cooper can, so Cooper can play around with it. So Cooper can take those and put them all over the house, <laughs> <laughs> or he can decorate his tree, one one of the two. Right. But yeah, they'll they'll be all over the house, and then the dogs will chew them up. And... Yeah, end up flushed down the toilet. Yeah. So we got that going for us. Nothing like a toddler and a pair of dogs. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, um, we. Seen a, a bunch of friends with kids and dogs and stuff. They uh, had the bright idea of not putting breakable ornaments in the bottom two feet of the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. That was probably a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, did, we, we um, didn't do that. We 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 considered at one point just like suspending the tree from the ceiling. Yes. Like, can you like do it upside down and suspend it from the ceiling? <laughs> That's a good idea. Like we, a, we weren't sure how to get the presents up there. Right. Like a Christmas pinata. Yeah. I like it. Jeez. Well, so let's talk about building apps that run everywhere. Okay. So I have a sort of bug report kind of thing to kick things off. Mm-hmm. Um, it... It turned out so. So background, doing a I do like little bits of consulting for people who kind of already built some kind of web app or whatever, and they're having a problem with it. So like a lot of times people have this 
sort of complicated web application and it's like either running really slowly or they're getting some kind of errors on certain devices or whatever and they'll hire me to just like fix that one thing like do a proof of concept that proves that it should work <laughs> and then you know it gives them clues on how to go back into the code and, and re-architect it so that it's either faster or more stable or whatever it is mm-hmm. and somebody uh, approached me with this um, situation where they I think I talked about it before where they want the entire application to run offline all the time uh, so visit you visit the web app the whole thing downloads to the phone uh, and it's in from forevermore it's just running from the phone regardless of if they're online or offline why not just make an app <laughs> um, because it uh, it's like a service so they 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 create this like web interface and people can upload all their data into this web thing and then it creates a little website for them which then they essentially install on their phone so you don't have to go through the the app store you don't have to deal with any um, apple bs Uh, it also runs on you know the more modern versions of android so you get the cross-platform thing and you get to avoid the app store and revenue sharing and all that so it's this little site that, that that it generates that runs offline. Right. It's like a site that generates sites that uh, it's like a, yeah. And then, and then, you know, so you can store it offline. So the, um, there's an interesting issue, which is that uh, all of the mini sites, let's call them, are hosted off the same domain, of course. They're, you mm-hmm. know, because that's part of the, part of the thing. So if, if a client uh, has a bunch of these little mini apps and they all have, you know, they, they have like a lot of photos and images, like a lot of images and, and some videos in them and stuff. Uh-huh. If, if the client creates a bunch of these, they're all, the local storage is all shared underneath the same domain. Uh. So you start to hit resource limits uh, on the devices. So it was like, yeah. originally the whole thing was app cache because it's all static assets anyway. But static asset, but uh, app cache has a hard, 50 megabyte limit Mm -hmm. and even though almost none of the individual little um, mini sites uh, generally they're always individually under 50 megabytes as the service gets more popular and the the person has multiple ones of them on the same phone all coming from the same uh, origin yeah it's, it's gonna add up right so the the only solution available is to use um, web sql database for a lot of the data storage so that the variable portion of the data storage because that's the only mm-hmm. client-side data solution that allows you to grant more space um, so like local storage you can't up the the ante it's like whatever it is five megabytes or something of storage maximum and then if you hit that then you're done yeah so that's way too small and app cache maxes out at, at 50. So then, you know, if you're if you're hitting that, there's nothing you can do. Uh, so Web SQL database is the only option left. So I had this, so I was like, all right, cool. So in the, 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 the challenge is one of those fun ones where it's like, all right, they've got this existing web app and there's tons of work has gone into it. And uh, or really the, 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 the sort of tool that generates these mini apps a lot of work went into that. And the mini apps, you, you want to change it as little as possible. I don't want to like rebuild the thing from the ground up and then they have to change right. the whole system and all that and debug the whole thing. So I was like, how can I take the existing architecture and change it as little as possible 
but shift from using app cache over to um, web sql database and the the key was um, to figure out how to um, not load the images that are in the static html uh, but rather to download them as base64 and and jam them into the database and then pull them from the database for any future launches ah see when you were talking about base64 images I thought you were referring to another project we've been working on. Yes, very similar now. Very similar. Right, and it's and it's total coincidence. So, uh, uh, but having worked on that other project, which I think we we talked about in the cores episode when the the origin or the yeah. options header, it's the same kind of concept. Um, but what was very different is that there's no API for this one. It just generates right. these static HTML files, and you download them, and that's it. So I was like, all right, well, if you, um, instead of having the, so what the proof of concept right now is pretty, it's kind of cool. It's like a, it, if I do say so myself, the, uh, I said, I had them replace all of the source links, uh, which would normally be pointing to distinct images. I had to point all of those to a placeholder JPEG Yes. and then added a data source URL. So like a, a data attribute on the image. For the, that's, a, that's a link to the encoded. Well, to the real source. Right. And actually, you might have a advice about how to do this better than I did it. But the the so what happens is when the page loads, you instantly get all the placeholder graphics, which is cool because uh, it loads super fast. You know, it's just downloading one image and just mm -hmm. displaying it all over the place. And then it uh, grabs all the images out of the entire document, like so the whole DOM. And, you know, uses jQuery, just grab all the images and loop through them and retrieve them from the server as base64. And right. as it gets each one, it sticks it in the database and, uh, you know, as as the, the text, essentially a text version of the image, uh, and then goes through and replaces all of the, the actual source attributes with the new base64 data URL. And weirdly, it's like, it's like way faster it doesn't make any sense. It, it must be an illusion, but it mm -hmm. feels way faster than when the uh, images were actually uh, referenced in the source. It's weird because I'm doing mm. a, a lot more work. Yeah. You know, like the server side has to convert the images. And I used a. So what I did was I, it, I just do an Ajax call to the server. It hits a mm -hmm. uh, PHP page. It has like three lines of code in it that says, all right, what URL are you looking for? Okay, here it is on the file system. Convert it to base64 and, and right. send that back. Uh, and I don't know. It like works great. Um, and so so here's the here's the bug. I was like, I was sort of, you know, I, I did the proof of concept, then I refactored the code a little bit, and what ended up happening was I was getting all of the, whatever the last image was, mm -hmm. that, that was the one that was, like that one was getting used everywhere. It was like, it would, it would, it was like, I didn't know what was happening. Like you'd have like three images and there'd be a red one, a green one, and a blue one. The blue one would be last. And then when I ran the app, it would be, they'd all come in blue. And I'm trying to debug it. I'm like, what the hell is going on? I'm like, there must be some kind of race condition going on with this database storage. And, and maybe, you know, maybe there's uh I, I have my closures wrong or you know do i need to nest these functions and i was worked on it for like three hours <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on mm -hmm. it turned out i left out of a, a var 
in front of one of the variables. Oh. So so it's just stupid. So it was getting defined as a global. Yeah. Yeah. So it was getting stomped, and then at the end, it was like you know stored the that last one. So dumb. Oops. Yeah. But so yeah, I've, I've done that before. <laughs> oh, so it's it's been a while since I've done that. It was really painful. But a couple of things, uh, I, I learned a couple of things as I was trying to beat against that. And one of them is, this isn't really a, you know, so that was sort of a bug report, but really it's a stupidity report. And there, uh, another thing which I would sort of consider a bug report is that I've been, uh, in my training classes, I've been telling people that when they use WebSQL database, the open database call uh, has four parameters. You send in a short name for the database, a version number, a display name for the database, and a max size for the database. And, uh, and I always tell people the max size parameter is basically, it's ignored. Um, it's, it's not used by any browser vendors, which is almost true, but it turns out it's not 100% true. Uh, if, you, um, if you're familiar with, like, if you use the Gmail web app client, every once in a while when the database hits a certain size, it'll say, hey, Gmail would like five more megabytes of storage space. You know, is that okay? Yeah. Yes or no? And... And I remember, it, and usually it goes up in increments of five megabytes. So one time I, I installed the uh, Financial Times mobile app, which is the same kind of thing. It's like a web app, but it's it's 100% lives offline. And uh, I, I remember one time when I very first downloaded it, it said, Financial Times would like to use up to 50 megabytes of storage space on your phone. I'm like, how the hell did they do that? <laughs> yeah and sure yeah, enough I, I remember that yeah sure enough that max size uh parameter does do something in mobile safari which is i that, guess that's good yeah it's great yeah it's awesome so you so because if you don't have that then what happens is you say you know somebody goes to save uh you know they visit this app for the first time and it says this app would like five megabytes of storage and you go okay and then it grinds for a minute and then it's like this app would like five more megabytes of storage it grinds for a minute <laughs> yeah and happens like 10 times and you're like um okay seriously can we just be done now <laughs> right so it turns out if you set that number high enough it will um uh it will grant this the size for everything all at once that's good is there an upper limit uh, I fear that there may be. So here's the, so what I know so far is, is that, and I only tested this on, uh, an iPhone four running iOS six in mobile Safari. So, you know, your mileage may vary, but it won't let you grant more than 50 megabytes at, on that initial load. Mm -hmm. But I'm hopeful that, that that's not the hard limit. I'm hopeful that it's just, it just won't let you grant more than that at once. Right, and you can still request more. Climb up, that. yeah. Hopefully, because if not, then all of the the proof of concept thing for the off the little mini apps is is a waste because the whole, you know, because the the fifty megabyte limit is what we were bumping up against in app cache. So, right. You know, if we can't go higher than fifty megabytes in WebSQL database, then we're, we're screwed. Um. What if you just put every you know. I, I assume this is a site where users go and they sign up and, and then they've got a URL that's something like you know, domain.com slash their username. What if you just put them all on, on their own subdomain Diff instead? Would yeah, that... yeah, that is, that, I think that would be that have to be the solution. So, so fun times. But the, the, 
the cool thing is that the cool thing about using um, SQL database, even if we do end up having to do you know break it across different subdomains, is you have way more control over what happens during the download, mm-hmm. and you can update things. Theoretically, you could update things um, <coughs> more atomically because the way App Cache works, it's an all or nothing type of thing. Right. With yeah. Uh, yeah, with this approach, you could get like you know th- have time for three images to download and then kill it, and then when the when the app came back up, it would be like, oh, I can pull these three images from the database, but the other thirty the haven't been downloaded. Yeah, yet. or you can say, oh, only these three have changed. Exactly. Yeah. So so lots of advantages to doing that. A little bit more work, but it really wasn't it really wasn't that bad once I figured out that I had a global variable <laughs> in there. So that will be uh, that will be. Um, It'll be. Uh, I'll be interested to find out about that upper limit. That's the next thing I have to test. Yeah. Get it. You're gonna have to download some really large files to your phone. Yeah. Yep. I actually have. I've done that with um, AppCache to test the 50 megabyte thing, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's a drag because not only does um, not only does it fail when you hit 50 megabytes, but it makes you sit and download everything before it fails. <laughs> Yeah. Which I suppose makes sense because it doesn't know how much there's going to be. Right. But uh, if you but if you do like it doesn't. Let's see. If I have this right. I think I'm correct in saying that it doesn't fail when you hit 50 megabytes. It fails when it finishes. So if you have like 300 megabytes of data in your app cache, it'll download the whole thing and then it'll be like. Uh, this, I, I, this by the way, we I stopped saving this 250 megs ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's a little a little annoying. Right. So anyway, the the I think the SQL database approach gives you um, a lot more control programmatically. It does give you more control programmatically, and it and like I said, it wasn't super hard. Wouldn't be super hard to implement. So that was yep. fun with Web SQL database. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I haven't actually haven't haven't done a lot with it, so I poke around. Yeah, there's there's another thing I should mention since um, since you know there's no one to argue with me except for you. <laughs> <laughs> but every time I advocate for Web SQL database, someone from the peanut gallery says Web SQL database has been deprecated by the W3C, and then my head explodes. Yeah. And I say no, it hasn't been deprecated by the W3C. It the spec is frozen because no one has implemented it with anything but SQLite. And if it was going to be deprecated by someone, it would be deprecated by a browser vendor, and no browser vendors have deprecated it, and they won't because it's built. So yeah. So Web SQL Database has uh, excellent support across virtually all browsers except for IE and Firefox. So if you know you're not um, going to be running in IE or Firefox, then it's a perfectly reasonable approach. Uh, for- I, IE doesn't surprise me, but Firefox does a little bit. Yeah, me too. It, and it's funny because the they're in a perfect situation to unfreeze the spec. Like if if they just implemented it with something besides SQLite, mm-hmm. you know, and and then it would be back to normal, so to speak. I, and I, I've even said that to, uh, you know, the powers that be at Firefox. Like, why don't you guys, oh, now we're doing IndexedDB. IndexedDB is like, I'm like, well, they're, they're really different. The two things are so different. Like it wouldn't, it's not like they're, perfectly comparable yeah you know so i mean to me it would be i wish they would i wish (laughs) wish, uh firefox would implement it but you know 
I'm sure it's a lot of work, especially if they can't use SQLite. Because what are you going to use? Yeah. Why? Why can't they use it? If they well, if they use SQLite, then it's not going to help because uh, W3C won't unfreeze the spec. Right. If they use something else, then W3C would unfreeze the spec, and then the peanut gallery would settle down, <laughs> which would be nice. Yeah. And I, I had a I had, actually I, I had an uh, online one of those online arguments. You know, when you you're like, I can't go to bed. There's someone on the internet who's wrong. Yeah. yeah there's, there's an XKCD. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. And and this person, you know, I'm I I consider myself fairly pragmatic about issues. Like I like things to be perfect. Mm -hmm. But I'm not gonna. You also you also like things to be simple. Yeah, I like things to work. And be fast and if it means that i have to denormalize a database or if it means that i have to like you know not use semantically perfect html but it's better for the user i'm probably going to do it mm -hmm. and uh the <laughs> i sort of got into this th thread it was a polite thread actually of a few people uh who were advocating for index db and i'm like i'm like but how can you how can you be recommending that people use this when it doesn't run hardly anywhere it's like doesn't run anywhere except for desktop Firefox and desktop IE. Yeah. Like, where are you going to use it? And they were like, well, you can use a polyfill uh, to, to, to get it working on other platforms, which shocked me because it's extremely complicated. Yeah, like, that is, that is surprising. And I'm like, so my reaction was, how big is the polyfill? And they're like, oh, it's like 500 K. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so you're telling me that, and and I was like, and what is it used for its underlying storage? They're like WebSQL DB. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, so what you're telling me to do is to, you're suggesting that people, in, it, it probably wasn't 500 kilobytes, but it was huge. Yeah. I'm like, so you're suggesting that someone adds like 50,000 lines of JavaScript to their, their code. So that, so that someone on their phone can download it. So someone on their phone can download it because that's the place where it won't run. Yeah. To use WebSQL database, which you're telling me is is something you shouldn't be using, just so we can use a different syntax that will someday be be available. And the and it's not like it's not like IndexedDB is going to be ready in, in six months. Yeah. It's not going to be coming for a long time. You know, if if anything, they should go the other way. Other way with it. Default to. WebSQL and have a polyfill for IndexedDB. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then the problem is they're writing they're they're writing the syntax that they feel is is going to break eventually. Yeah. But that's just the whole thing is just absurd. I'm like, this is widely implemented in browsers, and and just use it. <laughs> <laughs> and and IndexedDB may well be better when it's it has that level of you know of of support, <laughs> but until it does. It doesn't matter how great it is because, you know, no one can use it. Yeah. And the polyfill is not even fully implemented. There's like a bunch mm -hmm. of stuff. I mean, to imagine implementing it in JavaScript is... It's crazy. It's jaw-dropping because the IndexedDB spec is... The, the IndexedDB API is very, very weird. Uh, not bad. It's just weird. Yeah. So uh, it's cool, actually, but it's very, very different. Like the way you do a search, you... Mm -hmm create like a, a bounded range and you know you like get this cursor result and then the way that you loop through results is totally unprecedented as far as in my experience it's almost like you get you do like a it's kind of like the syntax of a while 
statement or a while block, but it's mm -hmm. there's something magic happening there. It's it almost looks like invalid JavaScript the way it works. Hmm. It's really weird. And uh again, very cool and and someday it will be useful. But uh you know, it drives me bananas when I mean it's kind of like uh it's I don't know. It's just pedantic to be like you know, this is I'm like, do you use any do you use any CSS with vendor prefixes? I mean, like that's non-standard. Yeah. I don't know, whatever. It's the, there's my I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not uncommon. Anytime anytime something new and better comes out, you have a a group of early adopters that jump on the bandwagon and then, you know, put the blinders on. Yeah, yeah. And I it, but it's I mean, in my opinion, it's not even out yet. Yeah. It's on no mobile browsers. So as far as I'm concerned, it hasn't been released. <laughs> it just exists. It's a, it's, a, it's a proof of concept at this point as far as you're concerned. Yeah, basically. It reminds me, last night Erica said, I said, oh, we should watch a movie tonight because Cooper's at Grandma's house. Yeah. I was like, we should watch a movie. And she's like, I don't know. What, is there anything? What do you want to watch? And I was like, well, we could watch Skyfall. And she goes, it's in theaters. It's not out yet. <laughs> yeah. Which was like, I was like, oh man, that's hilarious you just said that. Because as <laughs> yeah. far as we're concerned, it's not out until it's on Amazon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> yeah. I uh, see. I, I have I have bad movie night tonight with Wyatt. Nice. Yeah, we haven't had one in months. I'm looking forward to it. What's the What's the selection? Uh, I don't know yet. It's It's not my turn to pick. Ah. So very. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> bad movie night yeah. all right so i thought I, I probably i probably beat the crap out of that dead horse I <laughs> so you mentioned uh, you brought up a really interesting topic i think over email this week about error handling for yeah, rest it, apis it, yeah it would just kind of kind of something that's been bouncing around in my head for a while mm. so how did it uh I can't remember how it occurred to you to to bring it up. Um, well, I guess, and a lot of this probably probably pertains more to sort of internal APIs and APIs that use, I guess, proprietary clients that you own rather than necessarily things that other people are building clients on top of. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it came about because we had um, have a, we have a client, mutual client, has a, a fairly large API, and um, you know, we get requests coming into that API from their software that that they distribute to their customers. Right. It's basically a private API. Yeah. Yeah, it's not yeah. And um you know, so so sometimes we get you know, there'll be customers will try and connect to the you know, the application will try and connect to the API and there'll be errors. And, you know, sometimes sometimes there are actual errors with code in the API. I'll admit I haven't written entirely bug-free code yet, <laughs> and but sometimes there are things like connection issues or firewall issues, and at other times we've had issues where something just happens to the data between between here and there, mm -hmm. and so it got me to thinking about error, not just error reporting back to the client from the API, but kind of kind of what is the responsibility. What responsibility is, is does the API have for, I guess, sort of sort of capturing and maintaining those errors, 
and what do you do with that bad data that comes in? Mm. Because we've had instances where we're we're kind of loose with some of the validations just because you know having bad data in the API has proven to be better than having no data. Right. Yep. Yeah, and you I so again this is like comes from my pragmatic place not my ivory tower place but I hate field validation. It's like like this goes back to my filemaker days when um there'd be like you can add all sorts of field validation to uh the database just like you can in in any database. Um but it ends up at least at least in that environment where you've got this uh, user interface that's tightly coupled to the back end, uh, you end up with users who just so you, you've got a couple of things. First of all, you've got um, uh, you've got data that's that well, I guess it doesn't matter. I was gonna say you get data that's bad on purpose and you get data that's bad by accident. Uh, so you get like hacker bad data and uh, or just like people who are trying to enter something that isn't allowed, but they do need to enter it. Mm -hmm. And I, after a while, I just gave up and I was like, put whatever you want in the database. Because <laughs> like if if I like as a as a, a database guy, you want it to be you want your data to be clean. Yeah. And uh, it's but when it comes when the sort of rubber meets the road and somebody's trying to enter a European address and it doesn't meet like the zip code validation you have because you didn't think to include formats for outside of the US, what are they supposed to do? They end up putting it in the notes field or they put it at the end of the street address or they get around, right. they end up getting around it. Right, so your data gets messed up anyway. Yeah, your data is gonna get messed up, sorry. You know, and it's, that's just, that's just, and if they, uh, it's, and I suppose you could say, well, um, that you know they should stop what they're doing and they should contact the developer or they should there should be a system that they can log the issue and say like oh i need to be able to enter but what do they do in the meantime and yeah let's, let's be realistic i mean they may request a change but by the time it gets you know, budget approval and development and testing and you know they're not going to wait three weeks to to enter this address right so they get around it they they always find a way to get around it so if you imagine, if you take that, or at least, you know, in that environment, they would always find a way around it. Uh, and if, if they didn't, I mean, not if they didn't, but if, if in this new sort of world with this APIs and clients, if the, if the developer of a third-party client is, is now the user, basically, of the API, um, they could certainly find ways around, you know, well, uh, it's different. I guess it is different. There's some differences there. But... In, I don't know. I've just, I've just, I guess I have a sour taste in my mouth from adding field validation because I feel like it adds a ton of complexity. And it doesn't really solve anything. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in our instance, we get, you know, it's a, it's a private API. So everything coming in is coming from the client, you know, that we have developed. So, yeah. you know, in theory, it's all going to be properly formed data. And if it's, if it comes in and it's not properly formed data, then we need to know about that. Right. And there is so that it's weird because there's there is a user at the end of the chain that right. still could be putting in weird data. But it it you know, so I don't know. I, I just I like the way it is. I like the way it is set up now because 
you just end up with junk in the database and you can it mm-hmm. gives you it gives you something to investigate and right. it doesn't really doesn't really damage anything yeah you may you may end up with something so corrupted that the the one the one user may have an issue using the system, but you know then they can just they contact support and support says hey there's a problem and then we look into it and we can see the bad data there and say oh yeah this is this is what went wrong and this is why. Yeah, there was like a you know like a weird Unicode character in there. They pasted some stuff in from Word or um, there was like a an accent over an E or an umlaut or something that wasn't handled properly. Or, but yeah. you, you can see what happened and you can correct it. <laughs> If it just rejected it and bounced it back to the user, the user's not in a position to do anything about it. Right. So, you know, like, what are you going to do? Like, send in, you know, so you actually you actually brought up uh, when, in the email a, a bunch of alternatives, mm-hmm. which were things like, you know, create an audit trail or like a mirror of the database to hold the bad data in like, what's some of the other things? Oh, yeah, or, or dump it into a log file. Mm-hmm. And you know, or return some kind of stack trace to the client that can be logged and and sent with a support request. Oh right, yeah. Like, what if what if the the client could just log it, and then somehow that would get communicated back to the developer? Because it's weird. Because this application is getting distributed to the general public, and and it's a lot. It's like thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So you've got all these users that could be doing all sorts of wacky stuff, and you've got all of these instances of this client application that are all talking to the same API. So you, you don't, I, I wouldn't want to distribute the logs across all those clients because you don't really have access to them. Yeah. They need to be, the log needs to be sent somewhere centrally, which I guess is kind of like what, like when, you know, on, on the Mac, when an app crashes, you can send a report to some location. Yeah, yeah, and I think right now, you know, when when someone submits a report a support request from the application, it does send along an application log. But to my knowledge, it may just be an install log. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it continues after install. Yeah, it's more more like the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I think there's a there's probably a right way to solve this, which would be to reject the bad data and have it logged in the client and alert the client that there's some kind of error that happened and that it's been reported to the authorities. <laughs> and, but but really, it's like I said before, like having the bad data in the actual API database is not hurting anything. Right. I feel like I feel like it's probably more of an issue with a public API because a public API. I mean, could potentially get hammered by someone just, you know, filling it with bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like there are probably some more considerations there, but again, and, and maybe, maybe some of the, maybe the responsibility for error handling there lies potentially more with the, the developer building the client application than it does with the API provider. But I feel like, I feel like still, I just, from the experience with this has told me that you know having having the data there even if it's bad can be you know just like extremely invaluable in in finding finding and fixing problems both with the client and with the API or or detecting network connectivity issues and that sort of thing mm. so yeah yeah at the I end of the day like, it's beneficial yeah i feel like if you're not putting it in the database you should be putting it somewhere definitely yeah somewhere central yeah. And it's like, well, and you could like, you know, 
like we said, you could be logging it to some central service somewhere. Yeah. But... And actually, I, I kind of implemented this once in a, a little proof of concept app I was working on. It was a long time ago when I first started working with, uh, with APIs. And um, I ended up never really using it anywhere, but thinking about it now, it may be something to go back to. Where um, I had a I had a, a database basically that was just for just for, for logging errors, and so the API would throw an error and it would log it to this database, and then along with the response that sent back to the client, it would return a a token that referenced that record in the database. Mm-hmm. You could say, oh, you know, there was there was an error, you know, contact support, and here's your here's your reference for support, so support can look in and. You know, pull up the specific errors that happened on that request. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, that's not a bad idea. It would, I think it would be, well, I, that assumes that you detected the error, right? Yeah. So, so the, the thing that I, the thing that I would, that I think is the pragmatic thing to do in the, the, the specific situation that we have, not, not in general, but in the specific situation, it'd be awesome if, if, uh, if we detected an exception, it notified somebody mm-hmm. instead of a customer having to be like, you know, I sent in a, calling a phone number that said I sent in a re- support request last week and I haven't heard anything. Yeah. Uh, it would be cool if we detected the exception to just, you know, have some alert that went out to somebody or maybe a report that they would yeah, check. Yeah, have a dashboard somewhere. Right. So that you didn't, because no one's going to like just comb through the database looking for like munged data. No, we've got millions of records in there. Right. So that would certainly be cool, and it wouldn't. And the the thing about that is, it doesn't require any um, modification of the client, which is the thing that I want. I would want to avoid. Mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of of messing around with having to mess around with the client. Yeah, yeah. The and the other option, I guess. For, I guess for better better error detecting is to is to to verify or validate that data but then not not prevent it from going into the database if it's wrong just yeah, to maybe exactly. just flag it exactly yeah something's wacky <laughs> yeah the wacky flag <laughs> so like, like a, a a boolean value like is wtf <laughs> right exactly <laughs> So now it's it's hard to separate myself from the specifics of our I, f- I feel like there's probably someone listening who knows better than we do that is like you guys are completely crazy. yeah you <laughs> guys are doing this like noobs uh, <laughs> and I'm sure that this is like an anti-pattern but oh, it's I'm sure it is. super useful and it's super easy that's the thing you know and and given all of the constraints of the system and the 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 stakeholders involved and the, the wide distribution of the app. Yeah. Like it, it may be, it may be very specific to our, our right, app. Right. I, it's hard for me. Well, I, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I, I'm wondering if there's a difference, how much of a difference there really is between it being a public API or a private API, because I, I keep thinking back to that, um, you know, that rant Steve Yeggy posted on Google plus about, reason you know like how google is better at everything than amazon but amazon still is, is gonna win yeah a killer post I'll, I'll have to link to it it's unbelievably great and it's like it's basically um basically about accessibility and not in the not in the normal web sense of accessibility but just access to data 
and that Amazon nailed that with their their APIs and that they force basically Amazon, you know, Dread Pirate Bezos, as he calls them, uh, basically decreed one day years ago that all departments were going to expose their services as APIs internally, period. And, uh, and you know, it was really difficult, especially for a, a company that operates on the scale that they do. Mm-hmm. And the one of the there's a ton of great insights in the post. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that was that when you do that, even your internal departments, even internal departments in the same company turn into potential hackers. It's probably inadvertent, but um, they could easily set up some client with an infinite loop in it or something and just totally DDoS your your API. Yeah. So you can't trust that, oh, well, you know, this is only available to internal developers, so I don't have to worry about uh, you know, throttling or yeah. Like, whatever. Well, they're they're just as just as capable of, of forgetting forgetting to put a var in front of their <laughs> yeah. in front of their keyword as you are as as anybody as anybody right. So, uh, so that and that keeps popping up into my mind while we're having this discussion because we it is a private API and it's you know and the client is developed by the same team that develops the uh, the back end. But or the API itself, but it's like still the client could do stuff. I just don't know how important of a distinction that is, mm-hmm. other than the fact that that we, other than what I said before, which is that we kind of know all the constraints. So this like sort of, if this is a screwed up way to do it, it's okay because it works in this situation. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, because if we get, we know exactly what's going to happen if we get bad data in the API, and exactly how to handle it, and exactly what it should look like. Yeah, and the phone number of the person who's going to report it. Like we, yeah, we, we, it's like a small system when it when it comes right down to it in terms of number of people involved. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like an API developer, a client developer, customer service department. It's not that many people. It's like a dozen people total that are actually that would need to be contacted. Yeah. If something, you know, if something was weird. So I don't know, maybe it's this. I have that feeling like in a year I'm going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like maybe maybe having it kind of kept in the database is is a bad idea. But my takeaway from it is is definitely that you don't just want to discard data coming in from the client under the assumption that it's a client error and and it's up to the third party developer to fix because mm-hmm. even even if it is you know, it can still provide a lot of useful information right i mean if I mean, if it was a public api and we kept running into like say the client you know different developers consistently doing something wrong then at the very least that tells you your documentation sucks right right so yeah so let's think about this from the twitter standpoint so let's say twitter Twitter's got a super popular API. Lots of third-party clients have worked with it in the past. I don't know if they still do. <laughs> but uh, uh, what would be the downside for Twitter if crap data was getting into their database? Like, is there a... Is I suppose you could say, well, you know, the tweets would look munged, and therefore they would... Um, it would reflect poorly on Twitter because the stream would look like Twitter did something wrong. Really, it was like the, uh, like, for example, um, Arrow Balkan has this app called uh, Feathers mm-hmm. that essentially it's, it, 
it lets you put all sorts of fun Unicode characters into your tweets, mm-hmm. you know, because that only only recently was emoji supported on the iOS platform. So it's an iOS app that would let you put like all sorts of fun pictograms in there. And you can imagine that um, you could easily imagine him like sending them the wrong way or, or who knows if there was some encoding issues or whatever, and they'd end up in the Twitter database as like a bunch of squares. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be probably Errol's fault. Theoretically, it could be the fault of the person who created the Twitter database. It depends. You know, like there could be an encoding issue somewhere along the way. But at the end of the day, who gets blamed for unreadable tweets? Is it Twitter or is it Errol or like who fixes that? I guess I guess who fixes it is it, it doesn't matter. It's who gets blamed for it. Right. Yeah, so who's, should, who's responsible for it? Right. So should the Twitter API reject any incoming tweets that are in an encoding that the database doesn't support? I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like it, I feel like rejecting bad data, you know, in, in our case, we're letting it slip through because we, we need it or we need it or can use it to help sort things out for our customers. But mm-hmm. again, like you said, we're talking about a much smaller team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like on something something larger and more public, rejecting the data probably probably is the right thing to do, but I don't feel like, you know, rejecting the data is not the same as discarding the data. Like I, I don't feel like, like, you know, prevent it from from becoming a tweet, but don't just throw it away. Mm, okay log it log it somewhere whether it's in a whether it's in another database or a log file or so you know if you if you don't want it in your in your production database of valid tweets then fine but don't you know, don't discard it make it somewhere where you can easily find it and access it and review it search it that kind of thing right but that means that someone so in this scenario that means that twitter would have to be reviewing something and contacting errol when wouldn't it be easier for, you know, like they couldn't do that. Like they could never keep up with that. So isn't it just easier for them to say, sorry, you're sending invalid characters? Yeah, well, I, I, I think ideally you should do both. Yeah. Because, mm. you know, if, if you get you know, a large volume of, of incoming requests from third-party developers that all have a common issue, then... You know, it's going to alert you, you know, maybe there is something going on on our end or maybe we're not explaining something properly or, you know, maybe maybe our developers are expecting to use this in a way that, that we haven't thought of and maybe we should let them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess the question is, should that communication be happening out of band or within the API? Yeah, and it's like you probably have developer forums where they could complain about stuff. Um, all my stuff's getting rejected. Does anybody know how this works or? Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm a big fan of, of being able to access and analyze the raw data itself. So, right. So you know, my my opinion is is have the API stick it somewhere, whether it's a log file or another database, or you know, mm-hmm. totally totally get wanting to keep it out of your your production database and keep that data as clean as possible. Mm-hmm. I completely completely understand that. Yeah, I think I think in the situation our our actual real world situation, I think that it would be. A, a nice to have to additionally add this sort of like logging and out of band communication options, but it mm-hmm. doesn't make sense from a cost standpoint. 
like it would be a good thing but it's it doesn't the scale isn't there for yeah. it to matter so i suppose that i suppose that that's that's probably where i'm coming from on that because i know the costs involved yeah so i noticed so when we you emailed about this i Google around a little bit and there's this site called uh, apogee apigee.com i think mm-hmm. which we'll link to and they do a lot more thinking about this than we do that's for sure and uh and and it very cool feature of the website is that when they do a blog post a lot of times they'll say you know they'll say here's a, here's an issue like um authentication with a rest-based api or like uh or error handling in fact and they'll analyze how some of the the really popular APIs do it and mm-hmm. kind of be like, this is how this API does it. And this is how this one does it. And, you know, and to pros us, and cons. yeah, pros and pros and cons of each. And to them, this one makes more sense for these reasons, or that one makes more sense for those reasons. And, uh, the one, my favorite error one for like a big popular public API, mm-hmm. uh, was the, uh, Twilio one unsurprisingly, cause that, that yes. whole team is like gods. <laughs> um, the Twilio API is unbelievable. So, um, the, one of the things that they do is when they return, they return, if, if you do submit something, uh, a request and it does return an error, they, they are very verbose about, um, what the error was. They give you, a, I think they're the ones that use HTTP codes wherever possible. If there's yes. one that corresponds to the error yes, and Facebook then, doesn't use any. yeah, that's nice, isn't it? But then they, yeah, everything's a 200, no matter what. If you delete something, it's a 200. You file not found, it's a 200. Well, we responded to you. Yeah. (laughs) So, but the Twilio one, the thing that really I thought was awesome was that it returns a link to documentation for the error. And if you Mm -hmm. follow that link, there's a, there, there's like a forum thread of other developers who have also received that error. Which I think is brilliant. Yeah. So you can get a discussion going. Right. You immediately have a discussion going, and the developers can be like, "Oh, yeah, like I either, whatever. If there's some common error, or if there's a good workaround, or or whatever it is, it would be in that thread. It's like almost linking to the Stack Overflow post for it. Yeah. And I just love that idea. I thought that yeah, was so I do cool. too. You know, and obviously, am... it's more work to set up, and you you'd need to have a large body of of third party developers who are using your API for that to make sense. Yes, but I just about guarantee that it cuts down on the number of support requests that Twilio has to handle. Yeah, it must. Yeah, it has to. So I think that's a really that I saw when I saw that I was like, oh, it's like this team is sick. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally awesome. So you know, I, do we? I don't know if we do we solve the problems of the world yet. Um, or just raise the issue. I think yeah, I don't know. We might have made it worse. Because <laughs> now we've got we've got good error handling now, but now our database is messy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's weird because I, I, I don't know. I just at the end of the day, I just think it's set up the way it should be set up in the, our situation. In in our particular case, yeah. Is there I think I think when there is a, a complete decoupling of of the client and the API. I mean, it's not it's not like a web app that runs on your server and you're going to have Apache logs and, and things like that that relate to user interactions. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, so I think when there's a there's that complete separation, you need to be really careful about just throwing that data away. Yeah. 
and you know maybe it maybe it doesn't belong there maybe it belongs somewhere else but you need to be you need to be careful about just throwing it away yep that's def- i think that's def- yeah there's no arguing that so that's our show for this week i'm jonathan stark kelly shaver and we hope you join us again next week for the ninja podcast bye